Um, hope you have a Bible, and if you do, Jeremiah chapter 1 is going to be our text for today, uh, and really excited about uh, the conversation God's going to have with us from his word. I uh, hope and pray that you'll join us as we turn to Jeremiah. At the end of the message, we're going to flip to some other passages that I want you to especially commit to memory and, and, and keep uh, noted in your Bible, but we're going to spend a little bit of time, Jeremiah 1, 2, and, and flip across a couple of the first uh, part of Jeremiah. But before we get into God's Word, I, I want to kind of set the, set the table for us uh, about what really is uh, an important conversation that is not just exclusive to Jeremiah, but, but is really all over the Bible. Um, now, last week, in our introduction, we talked about the bittersweet nature of summer coming to an end of July, turning to August, and, and uh, summer is kind of on notice, uh, even though the hot weather is going to stick around for a while. Obviously, the season itself is here for uh, well into September, but, but the traditional summertime vacation season, it, it kind of tapers off just a few weeks into August. Uh, the main reason, growing up in this country, uh, is because the new school year is uh, we're about to kick off early to mid-August, as does the, the many weekly extracurricular, extracurricular activities that might have took the summer off. So kind of life gets back to normal, uh, basically, as August comes around. Uh, even if you're an adult without kids or you're, you've passed the stage of raising your kids, there's a kind of a mental switch that flips every summer, right? May, June comes around, uh, and it's like, wow, okay, th this time of year, there's more free time, extra free time, more daylight, more things that I can do outside and, and things like that. Um, certainly, um, it has to do with the weather changing and, and just our schedules filling up, uh, you know, or being able to, 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 to handle more and more things. But again, as August rolls around and as the summer begins to wind down, uh, life gets busy in a different way with all the different obligations that come along with fall and winter. Do you remember, though, being a kid uh, and, and, and how much of a bummer it was as summer would come to an end? It, it, you know, that's the, that's the subject of so many movies, right? So many books. That kind of, that's the, how, how heavy it is emotionally on a lot of us as children. Because uh, summer is this just magical, this awesome time of year when you just kind of can do anything that you want to do. Uh, and, and it feels like the days last as long as they could ever last. And, and there's always that bummer that comes around uh, at the end of the summer. Uh, I, I can recall thinking to myself, um, you know, it's going to be a whole other year uh, before I, I have this much free time and I'm able to do this much fun stuff, uh, you know, that, that's really only accessible and available June, July, and August. Uh, have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed that most of our cherished memories or many of our cherished memories are concentrated around the same seasons over and over and over again? All of us probably can look through our memory banks and our fondest memories are either around the holidays and especially around summertime. Uh, we kind of have those big memories, those, those tentpole memories from our childhood and from our younger years, even as we've grown up and with our families. And a lot of those memories are concentrated to, to the time of year, you know, around the summertime. So looking back, so much of our energy and affections would cling to this time of year, making the most of it, wringing out every bit of it. Uh, whatever we didn't get to extract from the present summer, we would always put off hoping that next summer we'll finally get around to do that or get to do more of that and get to experience experience it all again. But, but the reality is that sometimes as one particular summer ends, based on where you're at in life and, and the stage of life you're in, at some point, the promise of next year isn't as bright or it's just not the same. At some point, there's a point in your life, there's a stage in your life, there's, a, there's an intersection in your life where the next summer might not bring you what the previous summer promise because of your life looking a lot different, because of the point that you're going to move on to, whether it's leaving the school and going to another school, whether it's moving from this place to that place. At some point, you enter that crossroads where, uh, you know, any particular summer in your life where you've passed from one stage to another, and you kind of look forward thinking, you know what, it's not really always going to be like this. As you grow up and as you move through uh, the different stages of life, you, you kind of realize, and it, and it dawns on you, that some opportunities uh, are going to be permanently behind you. Of course, with every new stage of life comes new opportunities, but with every new stage of life and with every new stage, within every stage, that means that there's another finite window for those opportunities. For any opportunity, there's always a finite window. There's always a concentrated time period to which they can be Realize, just like summer only lasts so long every year, eventually what summer means changes based on your circumstances, changes based on your age. Every season and stage of life comes prepackaged with that same definitive bracket of time. 
Now, nobody likes to think about it, but it's just the reality of life. It seems that when we're young, we can sort of ignore or do a good job at ignoring, uh, but eventually we just can't escape that reality. That's the process of growing up, right? Uh, the Bible is full of these mortifying verses, and I don't mean that in a, in a bad way. I just mean these verses that kind of uh, make us aware of our mortality. They make us aware of the brevity of this life, meaning they impress on us a sense of urgency. They impress on us, and it's not just an urgency as in you, you better, you know, something might go wrong, but it's a motivation that you might not get this opportunity again, or you won't get it forever. Uh, one of the most famous verses that we look to for this sort of idea is James chapter 4, verse 14. James, the brother of Jesus, says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a vapor that appears for a little time. And vanishes. And James isn't make, trying to make you worry and make you, you know, afraid with that verse. He's just trying to make you realize that this day is only a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And tomorrow, it's the same kind of opportunity. It's here for a little while. And then it's gone. Then there's Psalm 90, verse number 12. Moses wrote, teach us to number our days that we may get or gain a heart of wisdom. Suggesting that if we don't number our days, or at least we're not keenly aware of how fleeting they can be, we might miss out on what they all can bring us. Maybe the most poignant and striking of these verses that, that deal with this subject is Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And, and I love how the Bible describes wisdom because we think of, you know, being wise as doing the right thing and obeying these sorts of commandments, which it includes that, of course. But the Bible really defines wisdom as making the best use of your time. And yet that entails living right and making good decisions and all those sorts of things. But the Bible really embodies or defines wisdom as in making the best use of time. And the warning, the reason why you should make the best use of your days and the best use of your time is that the days are evil. And you might think, well, that's a weird way to describe days. I mean, what's evil about a day? A day doesn't have a morality. And what it means by that is that it's evil in the sense that they don't last forever. You see, God dwells in eternity. God made us to live forever, and God designed this world to be a forever reality. Yet sin messed that up, and the fallen world that we live in is constricted to time. Time, as in a beginning and an end, is the antithesis of God's original plan. God never, ever imagined an ending. God is eternal and envisions and wills for us to be eternal. Yet in this fallen world, we are restricted to time. And that's why the days are evil. Not because they're bad, but because they end. You've had those days that you wish would never end, right? But then you've had those days that you couldn't wait for them to end because they didn't go the way you would have expected them or, or liked them to go, which tells us there's something not all the way right about this world. Now, God is, of course, making a way for us to enter eternity when our time runs out. But until then, I think a good way to kind of summarize this is we must not allow time to get the best of us to get away from us we must make the most of it wouldn't you agree we must not allow time to get the best of us make to get away from us we must make the most of it and, and that's the the title of the message carp diem which is seize the day make the most of the days if there's ever a reminder that time can get away from us, that time can get the best of us, it's how fast the best seasons of life go by. It's how fast summers go by. Especially we look back on those halcyon days of our childhood or younger years. We look back on them. We long to relive them and make new and similar memories with our families as we grow older because we are sharply reminded that they're behind us. And sooner than we wish, every season is in the rearview mirror. Now, the Bible doesn't urge us to make the most of time for sheer sentimental reasons, as much as God does want us to enjoy life. God must be talking to us on a deeper level when it says make the most of time, make the most of our days. He's not just saying, hey, you better go have some fun. He's talking to us a little bit more seriously, as you would expect. By all means, God is trying to get our attention regarding, regarding how our decisions and actions and reactions today carry over to tomorrow, even to eternity. 
as you would expect, God is talking to us about this subject on a little more serious level. And, and, and by all means, he's trying to get our attention. How our decisions and our actions and reactions today will carry over to tomorrow and, and especially to eternity. And really one of the most repeated messages in the Bible, one of the most repeated messages in the Bible is, is, is a three-pronged message. God is the first mover always. We must respond to him in order to be moved in the right direction because we can be a stubborn people and unless he moves us, we might not ever move. God is the first mover. We must respond in order to be moved in the right direction. And this last one might be a little bit, you know, difficult to process. Our God-given opportunity in this life is a predetermined amount of time. So let's go through this real quickly. How does the Bible start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How does the redemption story begin? God making the first move, which is a precedent throughout all the time. God is the first mover, making uh, moves without his authorship and inspiration. Uh, there, there is no move without his authorship or inspiration. He is the one behind every action. He is the one that moves and makes things uh, take shape. So what does that mean for us? We must be sensitive to what he's doing in our lives at any given time and any given season because it's in him and through him and by him that we find strength and the ability and the grace and the guidance to go in the direction that we ought to. God is the first mover as seen in creation. And he is the one that moves us. He is the one that stirs us up and leads us and guides us and inspires us to take a step in the right direction. Now that last part might be news to you and it might be difficult to process. Are our days really predetermined? As in, does God know our end as much as he knows our beginning? Absolutely. Job, as he began to contemplate the meaning of life, said this, since his days are determined... The number of his months is with you. And he's talking about mankind to God. You have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Now that should give you a lot of comfort knowing that, that God's in control. That God knows your beginning and he also knows your end. He is a God who takes care of us, but he's also a God that lets us know, hey, I've already ordered your days. I've already predetermined your days. Now, I, I know it's easy to get hung up on the semantics of this. You know, does God control every little decision? Uh, d d does he just, you know, know what's going to happen? And I think it's more of the latter. But the message here is that our days are indeed numbered and what we do with them matter and it's so important that we make the most of them because they are not, on this side of things, permanent. Now you've heard this before, it's what we do in the dash. It's what we do from beginning to end that counts for everything. Last verse I'll show you right now for, for this moment. Deuteronomy 30, 19, this is God's message to Israel as they stepped into the promised land. I call heaven to earth to witness against you today. That's a pretty big introduction, right? I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose life so that you may live. This is God's invitation to you every single day. It would be a good verse to, 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 to quote to yourself every morning for a while until this is ingrained into your minds. This would be a good verse to write on a note card and, and, and put, in front of, uh, put in the front of your notebook or wherever you, on your desk at work. God, every single day, sets life and death, blessing and curses in front of us, and he says to you and he says to me, choose life because this day only happens once. A major story in the Bible uh, really deals with the people of God forgetting all the things that we've went over so far. How they completely disregarded the brevity of this life, how they completely disregarded the importance of their decisions and God's rule and reign over them. And, and in this pivotal story, uh, which gets the longest book of the Bible dedicated to it, which is something to think about. The longest book of the Bible is really to Israel, to the nation of, of, of Israel or the nation of, of, of Judah during this time of their history, we find the nation of Israel at a place in time where it's becoming increasingly clear that they had long since disregarded uh, the many opportunities God had given them, and they were going to get one last shot at course correcting before things might be permanently changed forever. So let me set this up for you. 
You all know the story of Israel. Israel was a family, the people of Abraham, the people of Isaac, the people of Jacob. Jacob became a, a, a very big family. He had a lot of kids, a lot, a lot of sons, uh, and, and, and one daughter, 12 sons, one daughter, and they had a big tribe that basically became its own nation. Uh, during a, a really crazy set of circumstances, one of, their son, one of his sons, Joseph, becomes the prince of Egypt, which is, a, again, way, uh, never expected that. He gets sold into slavery, becomes the prince of Egypt. He brings his family down uh, to take refuge and to be guests of honor in Egypt. And he, again, rules alongside Pharaoh. So they're there for hundreds of years. And, and then eventually the people of, of, of Jacob, the people of Israel, fall out of favor with the people of, of Egypt. And Pharaoh uh, enslaves the people, uh, the Hebrew people and, and the Jewish people. And that sets the stage for the Exodus story. So they go from being guests of honor to slaves. For 400 years they are uh, slaves in Egypt. And then God raises up a man named Moses who brings them out of Egypt and leads them into the wilderness away from Pharaoh's army. And then a man named Joshua leads them into the promised land and conquers those that had taken it from their families years ago. And then a series of judges help establish a, a, a government that could keep them all orderly. So then a man named Samuel, the last judge, sets the stage for Israel to finally have a king and an actual government to rule uh, as a people under God, a nation under God. And it's David, the shepherd boy, who becomes the king of united Israel and brings peace and prosperity and happiness across the whole land. And finally, they, uh, they fulfill the promise made to Abraham that you will be a great nation that will bless the rest of the world. Unfortunately, they don't live happily ever after from there, though. David's son Solomon inherits a jovial kingdom, a very rich kingdom, but Solomon turns his heart from the Lord. He becomes very greedy, very ruthless. He leads the nation under duress, and, and, and they're at each other's throats by the end of his reign. So his son Rehoboam uh, takes over, and he ups the ante of his father's policy, and he becomes an even more cruel and ruthless king. So a faction rises up, led by Jeroboam, no relation, just similar names. Rehoboam, Solomon's son. Jeroboam, a, a, a very prominent leader in the armies of Israel. Jeroboam leads a faction to secede from the United Kingdom of Israel. He organizes 10 tribes. So 10 out of 12 join with Jeroboam and they decide we are going to break away from the United Kingdom. So only Judah and Benjamin, the capital tribe and the smallest tribe, they're the only ones left in the former nation. So Judah, being the royal tribe, retains the capital territory around Jerusalem and Bethlehem. But the rest of the nation and the rest of the people and all the money and all the resources and all the, all the soldiers, they go with Jeroboam and they start their own nation and they basically say, listen, there's 10 of us, there's two of you, we're going to be called Israel because we're the real Israel. Y'all are, are just the capital tribe in the, in the runt. So we're going to be Israel. Y'all can go by whatever you're going to go by. So the, the remnant goes by Judah. So this is what the map looks like. The divided kingdom. Uh, the green is Israel. The red down below, the orange is Judah. So Judah is the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. And the green is the rest of the ten tribes of Israel. Now I bet I don't have to tell you this, but this was not part of God's plan. This was not part of God's will for the nation of Israel. This was not his, his, his ideal plans for his chosen nation. Yet, they didn't really do a lot of consulting with him to ask him if this is the way that things needed to go. They were both in their own minds and their own work, following their own plans. It all started with Solomon's faith, turning from God, splitting with all different, in all different directions. And the domino effect of that was a royal mess, literally a royal mess. So, if you know the story, you know that the nation of Israel, the, the northern ten tribes, they never even attempt to follow Yahweh. They never even, even attempt to follow the Lord. They quickly turn to pagan idols, and they only exist for about a couple hundred years, 200 plus years. Uh, and they are conquered by the Assyrian Empire, and, and they were warned again and again and again, but they did not listen, and they never even wanted to, to, to follow the God of their ancestors. But... This lesser new, this new lesser version of Israel, they kind of got what they wanted. Because again, they never even claimed to be a nation under the one true God. Judah, however, after watching 90% of its population walk out the door, they were humbled a little bit. So they did initially pursue God for guidance and help and relief. And as time would pass, Judah uh, eventually proved to be indistinguishable from its wayward sibling. And, and, and they too 
begin to fall, fall away from the Lord. And, and the only thing really holding the nation of Judah together was that God had a covenant with them. God made a promise to Abraham, to Moses, to David, that he was going to use the nation uh, of Judah, use the, the nation of Israel, and, and this was all that was left. He was going to use them to bring a Savior into the world. So God had a covenant with these people, and he wasn't about to break it. So for this reason, God rose up prophet after prophet after prophet to preach a message of repentance and restoration, emphasizing his ability and desire to save them. I think, I think sometimes we, we, we focus on God's ability to save that we forget that God also desires to save. And the reason I bring that up is God is not just a slot machine that if you put money into it, something comes out of it. God is not this static box that mechanically works or works like a computer. God has a heart. God wants you to be his. God loves you. Yeah, God says, if you do this, I'll do this. If you respond to me, I'll work in your favor. But God's not just this mechanical, you know, computer that just does what we put into the keyboard, right? He's a God who loves us and desires us. It's a big difference, right? Yeah, God is able to save us, but regardless of his ability, which is there, more importantly is his desire that he wants to know you. I, I, I think a lot of times we, we, we think about God as, you know, God has this obligation to take care of us, and if we do these things, he responds, but, but God is not driven by obligation. God is driven by compassion. God is driven by love, and, and, and that's highlighted in the story uh, of the Old Testament. The most famous prophet of this period of time has to be Jeremiah. Jeremiah ministered to the people of Judah, going before kings in their palaces, the people in the streets. And he was a prophet for 40 years, so from about 627 to 587. It counted down in the Old Testament. About 40 years in that period of time. He was born into the lineage of priests, and he was destined to serve like his fathers did in the temple, yet God called him down a different road. And he was only about 20 years old when God began to stir his heart. So I want to jump into Jeremiah 1. I want to read kind of the background of Jeremiah's calling, and we'll see some of these principles that we've heard already reiterated to Jeremiah. So the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Isn't it awesome to know that God is, is not just the, the creator of this world, and he doesn't, he doesn't just randomly speak things into existence, but God is hands-on intentional with every one of us. He forms in the womb. He knows, as in he knows ahead of time, who we're going to be, what we're going to be, which, again, that shows the grace of God, that he knows ahead of time the things that we do, the things that we won't do. The good will do, the bad will do. He knows it all and he loves us anyway. I formed you, I knew you before you were born. I sanctified you or I appointed you. I ordained you to be a prophet to the nation. So God wants Jeremiah to know that I've been working, I've been planning on this and you for a long time. If you ever wonder if God is aware of what's coming to you, and I don't know what stage of life you're at, what crossroads you're at, what opportunities in front of you, but I don't want you to ever doubt or ever forget that God is the one that put it there. And that God is so hands-on and he's so orchestra as he orchestrates our days and orchestrates our life, God is able to do this with all of us. Again, he is able, he is way, our mind can only handle so many people at one time. If you're like me, sometimes you're trying to have conversations with four or five people at once and sometimes that doesn't, you know, I've only got so much RAM up here to work, right? And, and if you, you know, you can maybe construct yourself pretty thin sometimes, but God never deals with those frustrations. God never deals with those limitations, so what God says about Jeremiah, he says about you, and he says about me, he says about everybody. Even the people that don't even talk to the Lord, don't even want anything to do with the Lord. This is true about them as much. So remember that when you're eye to eye with everyone. I formed you, I knew you, I sanctified you, I ordained you. What a privilege that is, right? Then I said, and this is Jeremiah's response, ah, Lord God, I cannot speak for I'm a youth. I'm just a kid. Now, in these days, uh, you wouldn't be able to enter into the priesthood unless you were 30. So Jeremiah was 10 years at least before, uh, earlier than that. Uh, Jeremiah said, nobody's going to take me serious. I'm not, even, you know, I don't have, I'm not educated. I don't have all the things that everybody else has. I'm not went through all the ring ropes that everybody has went through that are in these positions. And God says, hey, Jeremiah, don't worry about that stuff. He's not saying don't do the work. He's just saying, I've already made a way for all that to work out. And he says to him, do not say for I am a youth. For you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. 
Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Jeremiah, God says, don't be intimidated. Don't be, don't be afraid. Don't be scared. Again, sometimes we come up against situations in life where we psych ourselves out. We don't know if we're able to do what we've been called to do or feel like we should do. And we, we tell ourselves that we shouldn't do it or can't do it or don't have to do it and all the different excuses we make. But God motivates Jeremiah. He says, Jeremiah, I will be with you as you go. And he says, don't be afraid of their faces. Don't be intimidated for I will deliver you. I will go before you. Now, these verses, I think, also back up what we've already talked about, how God takes responsibility for Jeremiah's very life. He said, I appointed you, Jeremiah, for this very purpose at this place in this time. So Jeremiah begins calling people back to God. He goes out and he begins to call people to turn to the Lord in his first message. This is pretty, pretty incredible. I remember the first message I preached. It's not, not worth much, but Jeremiah's, it was a good one. Jeremiah, we were about the same age, so he had a little bit of more help than me, maybe. Uh, Jeremiah 2, verse number 1. Uh, this is Jeremiah's first message to the people. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember you. He's talking to the people. The kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal. You, when you went out after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown, Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him will offend, disaster will come upon them. So this was back when God told Israel, hey, I'm going to have my hand on you. Nothing's going to come against you. I have got plans for you. Don't worry about your enemies because they're not greater than me. But, but, but I want to focus in on this verse number two where God says, I remember the kindness, I, I remember the love that you had. This is God saying to Israel, when y'all first came to me, there was a, there was a wide-eyedness. There was a, 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 an excitement. There was an affection in your heart for me. But as your affection wore off, your sense of direction also tapered off. There's a connection there, isn't there? As Israel lost an affection for God they also lost their sense of direction in life. It happens in our marriages. It happens in our relationships. If you, if you ever let your affection begin to decrease because you get distracted by other things or by other people, right? That's what, thing make, what makes relationships fall apart. Because we begin to turn our hearts toward other things, other people. We begin to let things get more important in our hearts than the one that matters the most. It could be a person. It could be a thing that takes the place of that affection. But this is what happened to Israel. This is what happens with us in our relationship with God. Our affection once was very strong. It once was so powerful. We loved the Lord and we were following and chasing after him. Yet something got in the way. Something got in between us. And hasn't it happened to all of us? Where upon salvation and when you, were, when you were growing up in church and you were baptized and you went through all the different you know, stages of growing up in the church and you were so smitten by the Lord and you were passionate about Him and then something else came about your life and you got distracted and you didn't make a decision that day, I'm going to put God second and put these other things first. It just happens, doesn't it? You didn't make a decision, I'm going to walk away from what matters most. But over time, it slowly began to happen, didn't it? And God says to Israel, I remember when you were so young and so affectionate for me. What happened? Well, of course, we know what happened. They turned toward something less than. Look at verse 4 through 8. These, these are so good. Hear the word of the Lord God, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what injustice have your fathers found in me, that they have gone far from me? and have followed after idols, and have become idolaters. As in, what reason did God give these people to turn from him towards something else? Nothing at all. No reason. No good reason. Neither did they say, where is the Lord? As in, they, didn't, they, they began to not seek God's will. They began to look for, for, look for guidance in other things, in other people, in other gods. So they quit asking the question, where is God, or where is God leading us? They did, they did not say, where is the Lord who brought us out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of desert and pits, through a land of drought and shadow of death, through a land that had no, no one had crossed, where no one dwelt. God says, as if I didn't show you I was trustworthy, as if, as if I didn't make it clear to you what I was able to do for you. And, and again, this is Israel's story. You could go down through verse 6 and you could write all the things God has done for you, and maybe you should. 
Why would we not seek God when he has done so many things to prove himself? Providing Jesus for us, placing us in church, doing this in our families, doing this in our lives, orchestrating these things that went in our favor. Verse 7, I brought you into a bountiful country to eat its fruits and goodness. And when you entreated me, when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination or just made a mess of it. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Again, the priest didn't ask the question, where, should, where, where is God leading us? What is God's will? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, which is a, a false god. And they walked after things that do not profit. They looked like they would bring gain, but they ultimately didn't. Time and time again, they didn't seek God's will when it mattered most. And now they lost their way completely. God gave them a land that they could have, they had everything they could ever ask for or need. And now they are witnessing it fade away before their eyes. In verse 9, God vows that he's not going to give up on them. Therefore, I will bring, I will yet bring charges against you says the Lord. And against your children's children, I will bring charges. Now, we think charges in a, in, a condemning word, in a condemning way or in a prosecuting way, but God is literally saying, I'm in the courtroom fighting for custody over you. That's the language he's using. I am in the courtroom trying to get possession of you because these false gods that want possession of you, that the enemy, the devil, and all the things he's trying to get into your heart with, they don't care about you. They don't want the best for you. I'm literally in the courtroom contending for you, competing for you. Can you imagine that? I mean, literally, can you imagine the God of the universe having to contend and compete to win us over? Do, do you hear what God is saying to Israel? I am fighting for you. The God of the universe having to fight for us? I mean, talk about humbling himself to a level that he never should. Why should God ever have to contend for us? Shouldn't we be there already saying, God, of course we want you to be our Lord. Of course we want to serve you. But we, we go about our lives no different. It's almost as if we tap our feet demanding him to prove himself, which is, again, lopsided of how it should be. We demand that he serve us when all the while we should be falling at his feet, realizing the gracious opportunity we've been given to serve God Almighty, right? God of the universe. Yet it's he that fights for us so many times. Down in verse 13 comes the indictment against them. They cut themselves off from God's nourishment and time would prove this to be their undoing. Verse number 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewn cisterns or wells, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So they've turned from the fountain of life that God is and they've dug up wells that aren't gonna sufficiently provide for them. So again, it's like, a spigot that doesn't have water coming out of it. Why would you go to that when you've got the water of life? Now, all the while, uh, all the while, God is planning to try to intervene, to win them over one last time. So God is going to intervene in nature itself to hopefully reflect back at them their own poor, failing condition. You ask the question, would God do that? I'm not saying God always does this, but would God do that? Absolutely. That's how determined he is to save us. So during this time, a severe drought swept over the land. And with that drought, problems begin to confound exponentially. Now, tying this back into the summer season, summer used to be very, 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 very high stakes, a matter of life and death in terms of providing for people the sustenance and the nourishment that they need so desperately. While this may be true in some developing countries, this really isn't the rule of thumb anymore, the way our world works and the way we can preserve things and, and, and stockpile things. Every year, though, summer stood in the way of the average person in a sufficient level of food for the next six to nine months. It kind of makes us hoping that we spend enough time in the water seem a little less important compared to how summer used to, what summer used to mean. The only water they were worried about was what fell out of the sky back in those days. Because if there wasn't enough rain, there might not be enough food or no food. Now, if you ever wonder, 
why your grandparents or your great-grandparents are so keenly in tune with the weather. It's because they were raised in a world like this, or they were raised by people that were raised in a world like this, uh, that depended on this. And, and again, it might not worry you the way it worries them or the way it worried their, their families, but because that's not, it's not as familiar or real to us as it, as it was before. However, even people familiar with this kind of anxiety in our modern world, it doesn't compare to the kind of pressure the people in the old world felt. If you read any piece of history, you'll notice that there's a lot of periods marked by famines and pestilence. Famine and pestilence go hand in hand. These cycles repeated themselves every few generations. Ancient civilizations were so agricultural or were completely agricultural based. So they were living day to day with few options to preserve food. So when drought set in, famines were soon to follow. And to make matters worse, as people scrounged to get by, usually they would stumble into foods and resources that would cause major health crises because they weren't sanitary. So not only were there famines, there was pestilence as people began to eat things that they shouldn't eat and try to live off things that weren't going to uh, keep them uh, well, let alone uh, feed them or nourish them. So as the people of God continued to walk farther and farther away from him, God basically clogged up the heavens for a whole spring and summer in order to highlight the spiritual plight the spiritual disaster of the people. Their malnourished and distraught condition was a revelation of an even greater deficiency in their souls. So as Jeremiah is preaching to the people, he used this dire need for rain and food as the backdrop of his message. He clung to and put forth the promise of summer and the harvest as a symbol. Let's go to the next slide. As a symbol of the restoration that God could bring. However, if you know the story, the people don't turn to God. The rains don't come. The harvest doesn't produce anything. So as summer began to wind down, all hope seemed lost. Whether the Babylonian armies invade or not, the nation was going to be without food before too long. The window of opportunity was closing rapidly. So over in Jeremiah 8, verse 18 and 22, through 22, Jeremiah sits down in disbelief and agony as this particular summer was coming to an end. And this is his stream of conscience. This, this is his thoughts as he realized the way things were going to go. I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint within me. Listen to the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people far, from a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? As in people were mocking Israel because shouldn't, shouldn't Israel's God be saving them? And he was trying. Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and their idols? In verse 20, this is the, this is the key. The harvest is past. The summer is ended. And we are not saved. Jeremiah said, we have one shot, guys. The harvest is over. Summer is ending. The rains didn't come. The food didn't grow. It's getting bad, looking bad for our people. For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? And of course there was a physician in the land. Of course God of heaven was reaching down to them, but they would not heed his invitation. The harvest was past. The summer was ending. And the door was shut. Now, to let you know how the story ends, there was a small remnant of people that turned to God, but not enough to amount for the whole nation. God took this remnant and placed them essentially as captives to the Babylonian armies. People like Daniel, people like Nehemiah, Ezra, Esther, these people that we know of throughout history that began to rebuild Israel many, many years later. They were ones that held on to hope and they were ones that believed that God was still there for them and God spared their lives. But the majority of the nation would be taken captive, would be conquered and overcome. And uh, Jeremiah's ministry ended in 587 because that's when the story of Israel essentially ends for their generation. Now we're just a month away from summer officially ending, taking this verse in a completely spiritual sense. We should hear God saying to us, make the most of the harvest 
I provided you. Literally, the, the Latin phrase carpe diem literally means to pluck all that you can today. Take the harvest that it's given you because you might not have that harvest tomorrow. So again, as sobering this, as this may be, I think it's important that we talk about it. We can absolutely miss the window of opportunity in which God is enabling and stirring our hearts. So I want to wrap this up by giving you a few questions or, or, or bringing a few things before you uh, that I believe God might be trying to get our attention about at any given point in life that I think a lot of us put off, a lot of us ignore, a lot of us just turn for different reasons. Maybe you've ignored this for a day, a week, a month, a, a years even. Uh, the question is, are you going to continue to presume and take for granted the grace of God that keeps knocking at the door of your heart? We talked about the urgent tone the Bible takes. All throughout the prophets, we see why they're so intense because so much was on the line. But come on, isn't there always so much on the line? If the days are short, if life is a vapor, if all that really counts is what, our, what we do in dedication to God, what more could be on the line for any of us? There's a finite window for any and all of us to respond to whatever God is dealing with us about in any given season. It's not because God's going to give up on us necessarily. It's just the laws of the universe. Time does not stand still. When God is moving, we must respond. Lest our window runs out. And I, here's what I know. The Holy Spirit is the one who's in charge of all of this. Not just in church, but in life. He's the one that orchestrates our days. He's the one that brings us to God and moves our hearts. But we don't know. We don't know when the window of opportunity for any of us in any given season might be shut. And again, I don't say this to leverage fear. I, I just say this to leverage reality. Peter tells us, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deed, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Again, not because God might get me, but because life isn't forever. Life doesn't last forever. Your time of exile on this earth is it's not eternal. It's, it's, it's temporary. So this is why the Bible makes a big deal about us coming under God's word and that we, might, uh, that we might make the most of what opportunity he's given us. So I want to give you three, three areas or three ways that God might be trying to give your attention that I think we should give our attention to today if, if this is close to our heart. Number one, God brings us conviction. This is probably the most uncomfortable one to talk about, so we'll move past it first. Did you know that none of us will ever change for the better without God's help? That none of us have the desire, and again, I know this is kind of a, a, a pessimistic view of humanity, but this is just the reality of our nature. That our nature would just soon be stuck in sin and stuck in, uh, uh, you know, at a, at a rut, stuck in a place of, of, of un, not changing. We would, we would not see our sin or see our disobedience or see the wrong in our life without God's revelation. The, the word the Bible uses for this kind of change is repentance. But, but the only way that we're ever going to repent and change is if God convicts our heart. Now, this might be an area of your life that is small that nobody even knows about, but this could be an area of your life that is so big it's affecting everyone around you. You can look at 2 Timothy if you'd like to, if you, if you want to just mark it and look at it later. But 2 Timothy 2.25 says, God is the one that grants repentance. It, it literally says, if perhaps God will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. The, the message there is that God is the one that gives us, again, God's the first mover. God moves so that we can move. If God is working on you to mature you and improve your walk with him, if, if you've got these glaring issues in your heart, it could be a sin, it could be a wrong belief, it could be a stance that you just insist on keeping uh, and, and not budging on, it could be that, you've, you know, that you'll have this, you have this thorn in your side that everybody sees, it's just agonizing you and everyone around you. Listen, it will eventually cost you something. Most importantly, it's going to cost you, it's going to give you tremendous regret but it will most likely cost you some kind of eternal reward. I, I don't have to spell this out for you. You know what God's dealing with your heart about. You know whether it's sinful or whether it's hurting you or those around you. But every time you delay repenting, and I think we hear repent and we think, oh, that makes me feel bad. No, it makes you feel better, right? It's relieving you. It's trying to free your heart from something that for some reason you've stubbornly refused to admit isn't good for you. Every time we delay repenting, we guarantee ourselves regret. You're separating yourself from God's best in the, short time, in the short term, definitely. In the long run, even more definitely. 
So if God is trying to bring conviction on your life, if God's trying to bring change to your life, don't waste that opportunity because you might not have it forever. Number two, God brings burdens to our heart. A burden is something beyond your own self-centered life. God is always trying to get us to care about things beyond ourselves. The story of Nehemiah, you can read that on your own. Nehemiah had a very cushy job. He was the cupbearer of the king of Persia. He was very well to do, very taken care of. But yet Nehemiah was of the nation of Israel. He was of the tribe and lineage of Judah. Generations after Jeremiah was a prophet, Nehemiah was one of the men who was, had the royal blood in his, uh, royal bloodline in him. He was a son of David. He was a son of the kings of Judah. Nehemiah, again, was a cupbearer for the king. And one of his brothers, sent a letter to him who were in the ruins trying to rebuild Jerusalem and they send a letter to Nehemiah Nehemiah we know who you are we know your name we know your ancestors we need a leader like you Nehemiah tried to ignore it he waited he, he went months ignoring it but every single day that burden got heavier and heavier and heavier and one day he was in front of the king and the Bible says he broke down in tears and the king says what, what's wrong with you and Nehemiah says guys king I have a burden on my heart that I've got to act upon. You see, God was trying to break Nehemiah's heart for what was breaking his own heart. Something I've learned that I think can direct a lot of you today, God often allows your heart to be broken by something that's affecting your family, something that's affecting the effects of sin that have affected you. And God is allowing that to happen because he's trying to break your heart for what breaks his. He's trying to burden you for a cause or for a person so that you might learn, you might realize you've got an opportunity to make a difference in somebody's life or in, in something, in some people's lives that you can't just go about selfish doing your own thing. Yeah, who would blame you? Why wouldn't you just keep the high paying job doing what you want to do, serving the king and living, living in luxury? But Jer Nehemiah says, I can't do this anymore. I can't do it at all. So somebody here today, God's laying a burden on your heart and he's trying to get you to move for him. But you've ignored it for good reasons but not a good excuse. Last one. God brings callings on our lives. This is probably the overarching story of the Bible more than anything else. God is trying to call us to live a life for his glory. It includes turning from sin, bearing others' burdens, but it goes past that. But you know why God allows you to see any of his goodness? And this is so true. I hope we can get this today. The reason why God blesses you at all, the reason why God is so good to us and brings miracles and wonders in our lives, it's that we might be driven to go and tell the world about what he's done. He doesn't just bless us to have a cup full. He blesses us and he's good to us so that we might be driven to glorify his name and be called to go out into the world and live for a greater purpose. The story of Peter being called by Jesus is the classic example. Peter and his buddies were having a bad time on the lake for a couple seasons. Jesus rolls in and says, hey, try the other side. They bring in more fish than the boat can handle. And Peter's response isn't, hey, let's take this on the road, Jesus. Let's make some money. He falls at Jesus' feet and he says, depart from me. I am a sinful man. And he glorifies God in that moment. And the very next verse says that they left everything behind and followed Jesus because Peter realized that he was being called to something greater than the fishing business. The only suitable response when God works wonders in your life is to hear his grace calling us to something greater. It could be as simple as waking up every day. It could be something that God does for you in the middle of a disaster. He wants you to glorify him and he is calling you to a greater purpose than we often settle for. I don't know where any of this lands with y'all. We could do three messages on those three things. We may one day, but I want to just kind of give it all rapid fire because I feel like it's better if we just kind of feel all these at once. So I just want to ask you a couple questions before we leave. How is God trying to get your attention? I know this about God enough. God's trying to get your attention about something. He could be calling you to something greater. He could be burdening you for something that you can make a difference in. He could be convicting you about something that nobody else even knows about. How's God trying to get your attention? And have you put off responding? Have you put off responding to the grace that God is trying to stir your heart with? Could this be your last opportunity to respond to him?
to activate his plans in your life. Listen, I don't know the answer to the last question. I'm not trying to scare tactics anybody. But I think it's worth asking. And I don't think it's a, question, it's a, it's a risk worth taking, if personally. Maybe he wants to bring change in your life. Maybe he wants to lay a burden on your heart, stir up your calling within you. As he deals with you, will you simply come to him and say, God, I'm done running. I am yours, and I'm going to serve and glorify you. Maybe you've never surrendered to him for salvation, that you've never followed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you know that that's a thing that you've been running from because you don't know what God might do with your life. I promise you it's better than what you'll do with it. It's better than what this world will offer you. The devil will give us a lot of good excuses, but I think we know none of them hold water. So would you make today the day you say goodbye to delays? Don't let another summer pass without, bringing, without allowing God to bring the harvest he intends and desires to bring through your life. Again, you never know. It might be the last good opportunity you get before your situation changes in a way that might not be the same. This... The summer has passed. The harvest is over. We're not saved. That's Jeremiah's response to what he had witnessed. But there was a physician. There is a healer. There is a savior that can help all of us. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, a wide door for effective work is open to me. And there are many adversaries. Listen, there's a lot of frustration in this life to try to hold us back from what God wants to give to us. But, but, but don't let your greatest adversary be your own reluctance. There's enough adversaries in the world. But, but don't let your greatest adversary be your own reluctance or unwillingness. God's grace is enough to give you the strength to say yes to whatever he's asking you, whatever he's leading you, whatever he's wanting to do in your life. Conviction, a burden, a calling. Why would we delay the work that God wants to do? It's too great to ignore. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for what obviously is a sobering reminder from your word that our lives don't last forever. But the opportunity that we get from you don't either. The opportunity to make the most of this life, to, to step into your calling, to step into a life that is to glorify you and to honor you. Father, help us not to, to, to delay any longer. Help us not to, uh, to, to resist the grace and the work that you want to do in our hearts. Father, I pray you move to this room. If there's anybody in the house today that has never responded to you, they've, they've never called on you for salvation, maybe you're, you've convicted them, you've burdened them, you've called them to something greater, and they just haven't budged. Lord, that they wouldn't delay it any longer, and they would see you work in their life in a way they've always dreamed of, and they don't want to miss out on it anymore. Lord, we rely on you and we look to you. We trust in you in Jesus' name. Amen.